Everyone, welcome to all our first movies around the globe. As always, I hope everyone had a great weekend. There is lots to get to on this show today, as always, including Afghanistan after the fall. One year after the chaotic US pullout and the Taliban's power grab, the war is over, but the misery remains for millions of impoverished citizens. Clarissa Ward joins us live from Kabul, plus the nation's former central bank governor, Ajmal Ahmadi, joins us to discuss the economic battle ahead. Also, China's war on COVID forcing emergency economic measures, Beijing cutting two key lending rates today to support growth, with one in five young people now officially unemployed. No surprise, perhaps, a cautious tone across Asian markets. Fresh data from Japan saw growth of 2.2% annualised in the second quarter. Actually, that was weaker than expected, but finally recovering to pre-pandemic levels. And a softer start for stocks across Europe and the United States, with Wall Street coming off its fourth week of gains. That's its best string, in fact, of gains since November. The question is, what next? Don't ask the financial giants, because they all seem to disagree. JP Morgan says stocks have room to run. Morgan Stanley believes the bulls have had their fun. And we're sadly in a bear market rally. There's no bull market tally, the fear his investors are underestimating, I think, the work that the Fed still needs to do to bring inflation down to target. Take a look at this, too. Oil prices will also dictate the path of interest rates and therefore stocks, too. Crude tumbling by some 5% on China fears, just as Saudi Aramco says it can turn up the taps further if it gets the nod from Riyadh Aramco, the world's most valuable company, also enjoying a huge profit glow, a record haul of more than $48 billion, in fact, in the second quarter. Wow. Okay. Let's get to our top story today, a year after the fall. Afghanistan marking one year since the Taliban took over government amid a chaotic withdrawal by U.S. forces. And Clarissa Ward is back in Kabul for that anniversary. Less violence, Clarissa, and great to have you with us. Less violence, but a devastated economy and devastating uncertainty, I think, particularly for for women and for minorities there. What can you tell us? Absolutely, Julia. Well, it's a very mixed picture here. We are at a central roundabout in Kabul, just behind me over there. That was the compound where the U.S. Embassy was housed. But you can see today this has become a rallying point for Taliban fighters to celebrate what they have declared as a national holiday, a day of victory to commemorate uh, the so-called liberation, the defeat of the U.S. occupiers at the hands of the Afghan Jihad. And we have seen a steady stream of Taliban fighters all day coming through this area. They've been allowing us to film them, which is something new because they're quite strict these days with journalists. But I want to be very clear that not everybody in this city and not everybody in this country is celebrating today. It is a very difficult time for so many Afghans. This country is isolated. Not a single country has yet to recognize the Taliban government. And it is poorer than it has been in quite some time. The U.N. saying that more than half the population are in a state of acute hunger. And that's not even to start 
on the issues of human rights, the oppression of minorities, the marginalization of women, and of course, so pressingly, the issue of girls' education. Girls no longer able to go to school after sixth grade or the age of roughly 12 years old. The Taliban has promised that that ban would be lifted momentarily. So far, it has not been. You can see our presence is attracting a little bit of attention here. There are obviously not a lot of women in this area. But the Taliban sees this as a day to celebrate, to wave their flags, and essentially to commemorate a day that for so many was so painful, but for the Taliban was a triumphant victory. Julia? Clarissa, I think the other thing to understand for people here, and we often see it written, is the devastating economic collapse, the, the impact of frozen international reserves not allowing money, which was the lifeblood of the economy there. What about just ordinary people and the hardships they've faced over the last year? What have people been saying to you? It's horrendous, Julia. I mean, you go to the markets here, and there's so much food there, but people can't afford them. Food prices have soared. The price of flour has doubled. The price of cooking oil has more than doubled. The economy is expected to contract, according to the IMF, by 30% this year. And record numbers of Afghans are going hungry. We've spoken to so many who say that the primary issue for them is trying to put food on the table. We met with a group of women who walk three hours every day to the center of Kabul to beg outside a bakery. This is a, a growing phenomenon now. And then they have to walk three hours back, but they do it every day because simply put, they have no other way to feed their children. There is no work at the moment. Now the Taliban will tell you that's the fault of the international community and the US for freezing those funds. But the process of trying to unfreeze those funds has of course been made a lot more complicated by issues such as women's rights, girls' education, and also, just over two weeks ago, by the killing of the leader of Al-Qaeda right here in downtown Kabul, really throwing a lot of concerns about the Taliban's promise that this country would never again be used as a sanctuary for any terrorist groups. So the relationship between the U.S. and the Taliban is in a, in a, in a crisis point, really, and it's unclear how how either side will be able to normalize that relationship so that we can start to see an improvement in the unfreezing of those funding and that desperately needed help getting to the Afghan people. There are a lot of economists and aid workers who say that those funds should be unfrozen, but for now a senior State Department official telling CNN that is not going to happen. There is no plan to recapitalize Afghanistan's central bank right now, particularly in the wake of the killing of Ayman al-Zawahiri. Yeah, further erosion of any form of trust that was uh, trying to be built. Clarissa Ward, thank you so much for being there and thank you for that report. Okay, let's move on. Losing steam. China's central bank is cutting interest rates as the economy struggles with COVID lockdowns, coupled with the ongoing property slump. Selena Wang joins us now. Selena, and already some weaker data, retail sales, factory data as well, and youth unemployment. The problem is, like many other nations around the world, they have an inflation problem. So cutting interest rates to support the economy exacerbates other challenges too. 
And well, Julia, if you're dealing with lockdowns and the threat of snap lockdowns, well, monetary policy isn't going to solve that problem. And if you look at that July data, across pretty much every category, the numbers were worse than forecasts. Economists are calling this data alarming, that it reflects a crisis of confidence in both the household sector as well as from businesses, that it also reflects a housing sector in freefall. So retail sales growing just 2.7% in July from a year ago. Industrial production's growth slowed. You mentioned youth unemployment. That hit yet again a new record of 19.9%. And if you look at the real estate sector, property investments by developers contracted more than 6% in the first seven months of the year. Now, this is a big deal, and we've been talking about this story for quite a while now because the property sector, it accounts for as much as 30% of China's GDP. So troubles in that area puts major pressure on the overall economy economy. The other story here is that you've got angry home buyers across China that have, in a statement of protest, have been threatening not to pay their mortgages. Now, this is because in China, oftentimes developers will sell homes before they're actually done being built. Now, in response to all of these problems across the economy, the central bank, as you mentioned, they're cutting two key interest rates. This was an unexpected move. But if we're talking about self-inflicted zero COVID policy pain, well, how much of an impact exactly is that going to make? Yeah, you raise such an important point. And, and speaking about self-inflicted and the impact that it has on, I think, consumer confidence, I just want to show my videos this, our, our viewers this. Take a look at this video from social media showing customers rushing out of an IKEA store in Shanghai. It was actually forced to close after a contact of a COVID-19 case was identified nearby. Now, they would have been taken into government quarantine for two days. That's followed by five days of health monitoring. And what you're seeing there is some of them pushing against an exit door. Some actually did manage to get out before officials could detain them. I mean, Selena, you know, you watch that kind of video on, on social media and who's going to go to an IKEA store or any kind of store where you could perhaps be identified along with someone who's been near a COVID-19 patient and then faced days in in some form of quarantine. It sort of explains the economic softness that we're seeing in China. I think it's a perfect representation. I mean, in a country where not a single COVID case is tolerated, it means that any outing, whether you're just trying to go to the grocery store or buy some furniture at Ikea or trying to take a vacation, well, any of those outings could turn into a nightmare. And when you look at that stunning footage, important context here, it was not that a COVID case was actually found in that Ikea store. It's because they traced a close contact to that Ikea store. So not even that a COVID case was found there and that created all of this chaos people screaming, running to get out. They're terrified of being locked in. And of course, the people of Shanghai, they know how brutal and traumatic these lockdowns can be. They went through a brutal two-month COVID-19 lockdown just earlier in the year. And those people, they don't want to get sent to that government facility for several days, followed by several more days of home monitoring. But what we're seeing right now is that China's zero COVID policy, it is struggling to keep COVID cases at bay when you're dealing with this highly contagious Omicron subvariant. And it's not just that people are getting caught in snap lockdowns in stores. We talked about just last week, more than 80,000 tourists were trapped in the resort island of Hainan. So if you talk about a hit to consumer confidence, to the travel sector, to businesses, well, that is a stark example just right there, Julia. Yeah, we saw it and felt it. Um, wow. Selena, thank you for that. 
Okay, let's move on. Renewed anger in Beijing over a surprise visit by U.S. lawmakers to Taiwan. The bipartisan congressional group said they wanted to reaffirm U.S. support for Taiwan. In response, China stepped up military drills. Blake Essig is in Taipei for us. Just as the dust was settling on the visit by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, then the subsequent Chinese military drills, you have another bipartisan group visiting Taiwan once more. Blake, you have to wonder where this ends. It ends in Chinese anger. I guess that's clear. Yeah, clearly uh, China not happy with uh, Nancy Pelosi's visit and this current delegation. And China didn't wait long to respond to the most recent visit from U.S. lawmakers to Taiwan, the self-governing island that Beijing claims and sees as a breakaway province. Earlier this afternoon, China's defense ministry released a statement calling uh, this most recent stop in Taiwan by U.S. lawmakers uh, as an ambush visit and a flagrant violation of the One China policy, which acknowledges that uh, the People's Republic of China is the sole legitimate government in China. Now, the White House maintains that there's been no change to that policy. Now, after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and her delegation left Taiwan about two weeks ago, uh, China imposed new trade sanctions uh, and kicked off at least six days of live fire military exercises surrounding the democratic island. Now, the military uh, aggression continued today as a result of this latest U.S. congressional visit on Chinese social media. The Eastern Theater Command uh, announced that it had conducted a new round of joint drills and combat patrols in the air and at sea, saying, quote, the exercises are a solemn response to the political plays by the U.S. and Taiwan that are undermining the peace and stability of the Taiwan Strait. Now, the Post didn't say whether or not those drills have finished at this point. A spokesperson for China's embassy in the United States also addressed the visit on Twitter, saying China firmly opposes any kind of official ties between the U.S. and Taiwan and that the U.S. should bear all the consequences, although it seems to be Taiwan bearing the brunt of these consequences. Today, uh, Taiwan's Ministry of National Defense said that they detected 30 Chinese warplanes and five vessels operating in the Taiwan Strait. And despite escalating tensions between Beijing and Taipei as a result of visits just like this, uh, Taiwan's foreign ministry thanked Senator Markey and his delegation for their timely visit and unwavering support uh, with Taiwan's foreign ministry once again reiterating uh, that China does not get to dictate uh, how Taiwan makes its friends. Uh, And some of those friends include the delegation visiting Taiwan right now led by Senator Markey. Uh, His spokesperson said that the purpose of the visit is to reduce tensions in the Taiwan Strait, expand economic cooperation on items like semiconductors, and most importantly, show solidarity and reaffirm support for Taiwan. And since arriving late last Last night, uh, the U.S. lawmakers have met with Taiwan's foreign minister, local legislators, uh, and Taiwan's president, Tsai Ing-wen, uh, who thanked the delegation for visiting Taiwan and demonstrating their support for the Democrat, uh, Democratic island with action, with the fact that they are here. Julia? I think no one can argue that they're certainly showing support. No one wants to back down in the, the face of a challenge, let's call it that, from, from any other nation. But in terms of Uh, reducing tensions in the strait. I think perhaps there might be those that argue that this was not the most auspicious time ahead of the Congress, of course, in in China later this year. Blake Essig, thank you so much for that. Okay, let me bring you up to speed with some other stories making headlines around the world. 
Any moment now, Kenya's Electoral Commission is expected to announce the winner of last week's presidential election. Early results show it's neck and neck between Deputy President William Ruto and opposition leader Raila Odinga. The winner will become Kenya's fifth president, replacing current president Kenyatta. CNN's Larry Madoa joins us now from Kenya. Larry, it, I think it points to the fact that this is so incredibly tight in terms of the vote. And you've now been saying this for, for many weeks, that we are still waiting for a result to be called. That's right, Julia. We're just moments away from learning whether or not Riley Odinga will be the next president of the country after five tries of the job, or it will be William Ruto. Here in Kisumu, this is the heartland of Riley Odinga's support. A lot of people here have been celebrating for the past few hours since they heard that the Kenya's Electoral Commission was about to announce the results. So I can just show you some of our celebration, Julia. The Electoral Commission is a little bit behind schedule. They promised that they would have this announcement about an hour ago, and it still not happened. But here on the streets, people are actively celebrating, expecting that their man will be the winner. If you see some of the hands, it's because they feel this is They expect that he should have won already. Now, the race itself, we're going to move back slightly. The race itself is so tight that it could go either direction. It could go William Ruto's way, it could go Raila Odinga's way, or there could be a runoff in this election for the first time. There is uh, maybe a few more minutes until we hear from the Electoral Commission what that will be. We already have at the National Tally Center in Nairobi, the Deputy President William Bruto has arrived. We haven't seen Raila Odinga yet, so some people think that's points to the fact that maybe it's going to be William Bruto with the President. It's getting a little rowdy here, so I'm going to send it back to you today. Yeah, there's a lot of people there, Larry, pointing to their watches saying, OK, now we've waited for days, we want the result. Um, I did see both um, Mr. Odinga and Mr. Ruto over the weekend saying to people, please be patient, we'll get the result when it comes, but also calling for calm. What's expected in light of this result? Are they expecting violence or do they hope peace can be maintained? Because it has been relatively peaceful, let's be clear. Oh, I think we've lost him. We can still hear the celebrations and the hoots and the, the excited people there waiting. When we get that result, we will bring you that result the moment we get it. Larry Madero for now there in Kenya. OK, let's move on. At least 41 people have lost their lives after fire swept through a Coptic church in Egypt during Sunday's services. Many of the victims were children. Officials blame an electrical fault. They say most of those who died were killed by the effects of breathing in smoke. And Iran is denying it had anything to do with the attack on author Salman Rushdie. Instead, Tehran blames Rushdie himself and his supporters. The 75-year-old remains in hospital after being repeatedly stabbed in New York on Friday. And a suspect remains in police custody. And Brittany Griner's legal team has filed an appeal against her conviction on drug smuggling charges in Russia. The court near Moscow sentenced the WNBA star to nine years in prison. The USA, she's being wrongfully detained and has offered a prisoner swap to try and get Griner and another US citizen home. OK, stay with First Move. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. Heat waves that have radiated across Europe have had serious consequences. In England, prolonged high temperatures have caused the source of the River Thames to dry up. So it now begins several miles downstream. CNN's Scott McLean went to see it for himself. 
It's one of the most famous waterways in the world, London's Thames River. But this year, at its headwaters to the west, there's no water at all. What would this look like on a normal year? Well, typically, you'd find um, half a meter of water in here. Local rivers expert Rob Collins toured us along the winding riverbed in southern England that stretches on without water for miles, past parched fields and through quaint villages, where the once mighty Father Thames has been reduced to a stagnant puddle. The very source of a river you might find drying up quite frequently, but what's quite unprecedented just here is there's absolutely no water, and that continues to be the case the best part of 10 miles downstream. Collins says England uses far too much water and its aging pipes leak far too much. A fifth of supplied water is lost to leakage. We have to adapt to this new, new normal. We have to use less water, use it more wisely, more efficiently. Satellite images show why 2022 has just been officially declared a drought in some parts of England. Normally lush green, the nation is now scorched pale yellow. At the nearby Oaksey Golf Club, they're hoping to be spared the watering bans already imposed in other places. A golf course without grass on the greens is like a shoe shop without shoes on the shelf. In the quaint hamlet of North End, water has never felt so precious. Last week, locals were forced to rely on bottled water and water tankers when the taps ran dry. It's not clear if the persistent problems during hot weather are high demand or low supply in the local reservoir. So this is the moment of truth. That's it. I'll turn it on. The water is back now, but local farmer Peter Langford nearly had to give his cows bottled water. And it's, it was getting quite desperate. The drought has also killed off the grass his cattle rely on forcing him to use the hay he saved for winter. Rain can't come soon enough. What it says to me is that these extreme temperatures that we've got, that's not Thames Water's fault. That's everybody's fault. You know, we all fly off in planes. We all do our bit to, to increase the problem. And I think this, it's a, it's a wake-up call, really. Scott McLean, CNN, along the Thames River in southern England. OK, coming up here on First Move, amid calls for the release of international reserves to help address the humanitarian crisis, the former governor of Afghanistan's central bank discusses life after a year of Taliban rule. Next. Welcome back to First Move. One year after the US withdrawal and the chaotic fall of the government in Afghanistan, more than 70 international economists are calling for the release of desperately needed reserves that are frozen abroad. In a letter to President Joe Biden, they say, quote, in order to mitigate the humanitarian crisis and set the Afghan economy on a path toward recovery, we urge you to allow DAB, that's the central bank, to reclaim its international reserves. Billions of dollars have been frozen abroad since the Taliban took over the government a year ago, around seven billion of them estimated held in the United States. And this as Afghanistan's economy plunges further into crisis. The UN says half the population is now experiencing acute food insecurity. The World Bank also predicting the country's GDP will decline by more than a third since 2020. Joining us now is Ajmal Ahmadi. He's former central bank governor of Afghanistan. Ajmal, good to have you back on the show. 
in terms of the economic and the humanitarian crisis that's taking place, does that tie with what you're hearing with people that remain there in the country? Thank you, Julia, for having me on the program. Uh, I'd say yes, uh, this does tie in with what uh, I'm hearing. I'm in contact with uh, colleagues, former colleagues who are still there in the country. And what they're telling me is that unemployment is high. They're having difficulty finding jobs. Uh, they're having difficulty making payments for basic goods. And it's, it's becoming a, a worse humanitarian crisis by the day. And so we're trying to help out where possible, sending money. Thankfully, remittances are allowed again. Um, but for the people who are still there, the humanitarian crisis is worsening by the day. You know, as awful as it sounds, and we know it is, I remember our conversation from a year ago of, of just how bad it might get. And I think myself and others feared worse at this stage. And I've read reports of some things working, things like revenue collection at borders, um, less corruption at, at road checkpoints, for example. Do, do you think this could be in some way preventing a further economic collapse in the country. I'm also conscious of the fact that the US Treasury allowed some of those reserves to be released into the country. What do you think's perhaps stopping more desperate situations than, than, than we're already seeing? Yeah, that's a good point, Julia. I think last year when we spoke, uh, the assumption that I had and many had was that no international aid would enter Afghanistan. So if you remember, Afghanistan was previously receiving about $7 billion per year. And the fear was that that would drop to zero immediately and therefore it would cause a severe economic crisis. And while we've seen a significant deterioration in economic conditions, I guess the, the good news that you can point to is that the U.S. Treasury has provided sanctions relief waivers and that has allowed approximately $2 billion to enter the country in humanitarian support over the past year. And that's the primary reason, I believe, why the situation is not even worse than it is right now. You know, it's interesting, the fact that, that, aside from what we're discussing here, that the fact that international aid stopped, could we also say it forced some degree of, of fiscal and monetary responsibility, particularly as far as printing banknotes, for example? It's just not possible. So in many ways, they've had to be, the, the Taliban have had to be very careful about how they manage things because there weren't the options, perhaps, to create the kind of money plinting greater inflationary environment that perhaps we could have seen. That's correct. I think um, many emerging markets or frontier economies face such a crisis. I think this is an extreme crisis in the case of Afghanistan. But when you don't have access to international aid or don't have access to international financial markets, you simply have to make do with what's available. And I think that's what the Taliban have done. They've um, been able to collect some revenues, and that's the only source of revenues. All of the humanitarian support that's been provided to Afghanistan has been provided what we call off-budget. So it's gone directly to the UN agencies and not to the Taliban government in order to provide humanitarian support for the people of Afghanistan. Yeah, and there's a reason for me asking you these questions, because I'm, I'm headed in the direction of the viewpoint now that's been presented by international economists from around the world that are saying, look, the situation now in Afghanistan is so bad and, and the people have been doubly hurt and impacted by what's happened. And 
international reserves should be released to the central bank. Ajmal, what, what do you think? I, th- I do believe that the reserves should be used uh, to support uh, the people of Afghanistan. Uh, there's some complexity in the matter, and so maybe I'll just take a moment to, to provide some more details. But the reserves uh, were held mostly abroad, and there was a court judgment last year uh, that mandated half of that should be uh, provided for the victims of September 11th, or at least uh, kept for a potential judgment. And three and a half could be used for the people of Afghanistan. So there's a potential three and a half billion that could be used. And I believe the U.S. Treasury was in negotiations with the Taliban on that matter. Uh, the complexity arises because I think there's a small, there's less trust between the two sides. And so the Taliban were requesting that it go back to the central bank. And I think the U.S. Treasury and, and the U.S. government um, uh, weren't comfortable with that and are potentially setting up a trust fund structure uh, that would manage those funds uh, and then channel it to the benefit of the people of Afghanistan. I mean, this is so important for us to understand because we were talking to Clarissa, who's in Kabul as we speak, and she was saying that there is food, but people can't afford to buy it. Is there some way, and it portends to what you were discussing there, of providing support for people for basic resources and services, but without overtly legitimizing the Taliban regime itself, because as you and I will discuss in a moment, for for women, for minorities, the situation is terrible, for want of a a, a different word. So it's it's finding that balance between providing support for individuals, but but not legitimizing some of the behavior that is breaking trust. That's correct. I think that that's the challenge. Um, And there's this is unlike any other situation uh, in the world, because on the one hand, um, you want to provide support uh, so that there's no humanitarian crisis. But at the same time, I don't think people are asking for seven billion uh, to be provided on an annual basis as it was with the previous government. So between this zero and seven, right now, the international community has sat upon approximately two billion dollars per year. And so the question becomes, do we want to increase that at the risk of legitimizing the Taliban or do we want to decrease it Uh, with the risk of creating a humanitarian crisis. And I think um, the goal is to hopefully increase that amount, but there has to be greater trust built between the two sides. Some part of this, perhaps, on a a fundamental level, if we just go to the the management of the country, would be putting in people that aren't sanctioned, uh, that are are known, not known necessarily for their relationships to the Taliban, but, but more that they are able to understand financial market flows, that they have experience and understanding how to manage an economy and to manage a central bank, for example. But then it goes to the point that you were making earlier about trust, and, and we can't ignore the devastating consequences for the country of what's happening to, to women's education, to the sheer uncertainty over their future and for the future of minorities. How does anybody, whether it's you as a, an Afghan national or anybody else, justify providing support and, and working with a government that at the same time is breaking promises and, and creating such uncertainty over the future for for people like like women, like minorities? I think that's the challenge. I think in, in some ways there was actually uh, a lot of goodwill um, at the outset of the discussions. Uh, and I think there was a few bad decisions, but two in particular stand out during the past year that made 
providing more amounts of humanitarian aid challenging. The first was in March of this year when the Taliban uh, decided to not allow uh, girls to go to school beyond a, a certain age. I think one that that broke the trust, um, and then secondly, of course, was uh, when it was recently found that senior Al Qaeda figures were in central Kabul. I think those kind of um, issues, when they arise, uh, create a trust deficit, and again, it makes it more difficult for the international community to justify uh, providing these funds uh, to Afghanistan. I have about thirty seconds, Ajmal. What do you want people to to know one year on? And to understand the most important message from from those back in Afghanistan and what they're saying. I think the message is the same uh, as it was one day um, after the collapse of the government, and that's that um, humanitarian support needs to continue to be provided for the people of Afghanistan. Uh, this was an issue caused by them, and um, I, we hope that that trust deficit can be resolved or some other mechanism could be um, developed so that greater humanitarian assistance can reach the people of Afghanistan. Our hearts are with you and with the Afghan people. Ajmal, thank you so much for joining us today. Ajmal Amadi there, thank former you. Central Bank Governor of Afghanistan. We'll talk again soon, sir. We're back after this. Okay, welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks up and running for the first time this week. The major averages all lower, unfortunately. Call it a case of the Monday blues after a week of positive economic news, including lower inflation cues. The S&P and Nasdaq rallying more than 3%, in fact, last week, with tech entering a new bull market up more than 20% from recent lows. The small cap, Russell 2000, also outperformed. That jumped, as you can see there, almost 5% on the week. U.S. stocks now up for four straight weeks, in fact, a strong summer throughout. The bulls, hoping new retail numbers will show some clout. Walmart and Target will provide views from the checkout. Meanwhile, the energy sector, well has a reason to pout. The U.S. oil majors all sharply lower amid new fears of weaker Chinese demand. The country's central bank cutting rates unexpectedly to help battle slowing growth. Add to that Saudi Aramco saying it's ready to pump more oil too. Context, of course, is everything. Chevron still up by more than 35% this year. Exxon soaring more than 50%. And nothing accidental over at Occidental. Its shares soaring more than 120%. Wowzers. Now, we're trying to get away from all of that with our next guest. What started is a project in Syracuse dorm room sparked into an on-the-go solution for owners of electric cars. The Rodi from Spark Charge is the world's first and only mobile charging system for electric vehicles. It allows drivers to skip the lines and wait times for traditional charging stations. It also has a delivery service. Subscribers log into the company's app and Spark Charge will come and charge their EV for them. The service, already available in Dallas, Los Angeles, San Francisco and San Jose, with plans to expand to 20 cities by the end of the year. And last week, the CEO, Josh Aviv, was at the White House to meet Joe Biden before the president signed the CHIPS Act into law. Aviv says the law is the right bill at the right time to solve one of America's crucial supply chain problems. And the Spark Charge CEO and founder, Josh Aviv, joins us now. Josh, fantastic to have you on the show. Let's talk charging first and then we'll get to the CHIPS Act. Welcome. 
first and foremost. But what you're offering is a sort of app-based concierge service, really, for EV charging. Just explain how it all works. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on today. Yeah, so our mobile app called Currently can be downloaded today, both iPhone and Android. And an EV owner is able to select the time, place, and how much range they want. And with the push of a button, get it delivered straight to their car. We like to think of it as, you know, Grubhub, Uber Eats, or Instacart. But instead of hungry people, we charge hungry electric vehicles. I love that. Now, the benefit of Postmates or one of the other brands, not that I'm being specific, is that when I order some food, it arrives within the hour. How much warning do I have to give you and and who actually gets the charging unit to me? Explain some of the functionality of this. Absolutely. So it's super simple and that's what we really love about it. So an EV owner can have range delivered in as little as 30 minutes. um, And they can also, what's really cool about this plan ahead as well, So we have EV owners that say, hey, well, I want range delivered now, and that range gets delivered to them right then and there. But we also have EV owners who say, well, I'm going to be at work, or I'm going to be at my house, or I'm going to be at a friend's house, and they can actually schedule the charge to meet them there. And that's something that's really unique about the service. You can have it right away, or you can have it delivered to you in the future. Um, When we think about the simplicity and who delivers it, it's, you know, our team of Spark Charge and currently employees that are out there delivering the charge directly to the EV owner. What's the average wait time? I'm really excited by this. Yeah, so I believe right now, um, once we show up and charge the car, it's about, you know, maybe 30, 45 minutes to charge the car. Wait, and I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how long I wait oh. once I say, help me, I'm, I'm stuck on the side of the road, I need some extra charge. Because this is what, I think this is what you're tackling is charge anxiety. And it's part of the big barrier of buying electric vehicles. It's like, how, if I, if I do run out of charge somewhere, even if it's in a city, how long do I have to wait? What's the average wait time once I've got on my app and go, hey, come fix my car, please? How long do I have to wait? It's about 30 minutes. So it's super quick. And the cool thing about the service is that 60% of all our calls are actually done at home. Uh, So it's actually people calling the charge to their house, to their apartment. The other 40% are actually EV owners calling us to their job. So can you come charge me while I'm at work? So I don't have to stop and wait at a supercharger on the way home. I can go directly there. So you have delivery vehicles, people ready just to go out there wherever it's going to be and charge it. Are they combustion engines or are they electric vehicles as well? Just checking. Yeah, we are actually super excited to announce that we've already started to convert our fleet to fully electric. So I believe now more than 90% of our fleet is fully 100% electric vans. Okay, cool. And how much do I pay for it? I pay a monthly subscription and then I pay for the charge that I use. Absolutely. So we have subscriptions that range as low as $5 a month and you can get the kilo price per kilowatt hour for what you use down to as little as I believe 50 to 51 cent a kilowatt hour. Hmm. Okay. So actually, if we compare it to building out infrastructure on a relative basis and going to charge an electric vehicle at somewhere that's got established infrastructure, then it's, it's lower. The cost is lower to the consumer. In most cases, yeah, 100%. In most cases, the cost can be lower, um, especially if you think about peak charging times and peak rates. Um, we're actually significantly more cost effective than those grid or infrastructure uh, tied charging stations. Okay, I read that you can scale up as well once you decide to um, enter a city in around 14 days, which is quite fascinating too. But um, what about 
expanding beyond cities? Because I know you're taking funding as well. And the, the key for most people, I think, with electric vehicles is less about cities, even if there's the, the challenge perhaps of queuing up for a charging. It's about having them spread all over. So talk to me about expansion plans, because I think this is sort of vitally important for going back to the point that I made earlier about addressing this charge anxiety if we really want to scale up EV adoption. Absolutely. So when we think about scaling up EV adoption and we think about how we scale at Spark Charge, you know, when it typically if you want to get a DC fast charge deployed, it can take anywhere from 12 to 18 months and the cost can be astronomical. And so we're currently we're able to go in and set up a city in under 14 days. And that means we blanket that entire city with energy. So anyone in that area can actually call and have charge delivered to them. And what happens is basically now you remove all of these, what we like to call charging deserts or areas that have been left, you know, basically untouched because the need or the, or the seemed demand for that zip code has been made unavailable. Um, and so typically what you see is that you see lower income areas kind of get left behind or left out of having infrastructure installed. But with mobile charging, we cover an entire area, we cover an entire city no one gets left behind and everyone has access virtually overnight. And so as we expand to these other cities, what we're going to start to see is hopefully more adoption of electric vehicles because people have easier access to charging. You know what would be really cool is, and I think you talked about it because you were on Shark Tank and that's where you got money originally from Mark Cuban. And I know you've scaled up now, which is, which is super exciting, but it's if a consumer could buy one themselves. And, and have a, a portable charger with them that they plug in and carry with them. Like that, for me, also is the future. Are you tackling that technology? And, and how far away do you think that is too? Not that I don't love the delivery service, however. <laughs> Absolutely. I think, what it, I, think what it's, I think it's a great idea. And I think what it's really going to come down to is, you know, does, does the need to have it delivered uh, outweigh the need to carry it with you, right? So, if you're going to carry something with you, the weight which is going to go into the car is going to shorten the range in some cases, and then you might forget to charge it. You might forget to have it with you. Um, being able to, you know, call the charge on your phone, what we found to be like the most simplistic, but also the most convenient, right? Um, but we will be having some new um, updates coming out. In fact, this uh, September 15th, we'll have Spark Day, our annual keynote. Uh, conference where we'll be actually be unveiling some new charging technology that I think it's really going to excite a lot of people and it's really going to disrupt the way that we think about EV charging today. Aha! Sparks will fly on Sparks Day, which is September the 15th. We'll be looking out for it. Joshua, great to have you on. Joshua Aviv, CEO and founder of Spark Charge there. Thank you, sir. Thank you okay. so much. Take care. Be Thank safe. you. Okay, coming up here on First Move, it's one of the hottest dry summers on record across much of Europe. You will now one town in southern France is imposing painful measures to conserve water. The details, next. Welcome back to First Move. Now, earlier in the show, you saw how the source of the River Thames in England was left high and dry from heat waves, while across the Channel, France facing severe water shortages too. Our Jim Bitterman reports from a village where the drought is sparking extreme measures and some heated controversy. Nestled in the foothills of southeastern France, the village of Sayon claims a dubious distinction. The mayor says his town of 2,500 is the country's first community hit with water restrictions because of this year's devastating drought. The first, but not the last, because there are now more than 100 places like Sayon in France where water is so short 
they're forced to do as in Seon, supplying residents with water from tanker trucks or setting a strict limit on the amount of water each resident can use, or both. La Provence, a toujours été, uh... Provence has always been a territory relatively affected by the lack of rain, but never, never like this year. That's a sentiment felt across Europe this year, where heat waves and droughts have left fields and forests parched and rivers dry right across the continent. The River Rhine in Germany, the Po in Italy, the Thames in England. Back in Seon, the most worrisome aspect is the lack of water for personal use. People here are constantly checking their water meters because the limit in some parts of town is 150 liters, about 40 gallons of water per person per day. Brigitte Ricou says she's gotten used to the limitations, but not without some adaptation. She reuses the water from washing fruits and vegetables on her houseplants. The family tries to avoid flushing the toilet after every use. This is basically what we try to do on a daily basis, to pay attention to water and to become concerned about water all the time. Choices have to be made. Riku thinks too much water is being used for agriculture. But ask her neighbor Cecile Maselli, a vegetable farmer, and she couldn't see the situation more differently. To her, food should be the top priority. She's no longer allowed to use public water supplies on her organic crops, and they're suffering. And yet in towns all around, there are people with swimming pools who are able to privately buy the water they need to fill them up at prices the farmers can't afford. It's astonishing. You say to yourself, it's so obvious that the priority is to eat, that we put some time to realize that, no, it's not necessarily obvious for everyone. This question of water and how we share it, I think that we shouldn't avoid the debate. It's not just in the South that there's arguing over who should be first in line for water use. All over this country, similar controversies have broken out on how to prioritize the use of water, especially after the month of July, the second driest in French history. And while there still may be some climate deniers around who refuse to believe in global warming, it doesn't take much to convince those suffering from this year's water shortages that the climate crisis is real, and is unlikely to go away. Jim Bitterman, CNN. Yeah, look at the future there too. Okay, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they'll be on my Twitter and Instagram pages as usual. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.